And again, you're listening to part one of our two-part series on immigration. For more information on the show, more information on our guests, all you have to do is go to our Facebook page, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear, and follow us there. Next week, at the same time, we'll feature part two of the series. So what does it feel like to be an immigrant here in Cincinnati or from an immigrant family? Our next guest, they know all about it. It's their personal experience. It's our pleasure to welcome Sumi and Arturo to Sunday Morning Magazine. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Wonderful. We're doing great. Wonderful. Right. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you guys. Now, Arturo, let's start with you. Now, you lived in Venezuela, is that right? That is correct. Okay, what led to your decision to make your way over to the United States of America? Actually, it's, it's a great question. I, uh, and I, uh, I, I, was, I never thought about that. I started working in Procter & Gamble in Venezuela and uh, a, um, in different projects. And at some point, there was a decision of the company to uh, relocate some of the functions in the United States. Uh, I talked to my wife. We thought it's, it was a good idea. We thought that it was great to, you know, look at New Horizons. And we decided to go, come and give it a try. It was a three-year assignment, and that's how we came. We came in 2001. Okay. All right. So what I understand about you, Arturo, is that you came to the United States just a few days before 9-11. Was it a difficult time in the United States to be an immigrant? It, it was particularly difficult. I mean, I believe that what happens is, and it's, I know you, you uh, may, maybe I'll talk about this later, but um, when we came, there was no social media. I mean, obviously, Facebook didn't exist. There was nothing. Uh, and, you know, basically, the only thing I had is a text in the phone and television and et cetera. So when we came, we didn't know much people and anything. And when that happened, we were concerned. We didn't have enough information. You know, it's like, uh, is this like uh, the beginning of a war? <laughs> you know, what is happening? Are we safe? Uh, so it was a, a little bit of anxiety. You know, we came here September the 7th for a better life, you know, like how things are, you know, in Venezuela, things were crazy, you know, very complex. And suddenly we come and we're seeing, you know, towers falling down, uh, fear, you know, uh, uh, sadness. And so, so was, was any of that put on you like as an immigrant? I mean, I guess the question is, how were you? Did that impact? Because people had different perceptions. And was that harder? Did that make it harder to be an immigrant at that time or not? It's very hard to say, right? Because obviously, you know, like in the 20 years I've been here, you know, you develop love to the country. I don't think that it was a big like, oh, it's affect me as an immigrant. It affect me as a global human being that, you know, that I have seen this happening in every country, terrorism. So, so I think that was probably more impactful. Okay. So um, let me ask you this. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Sumi. Go ahead. So what's interesting about your perspective is that it's quite different from mine and that having been born here, I actually have really intense ties to my patriotism as an American. And um, for the first time, however, in my life, I actually felt an, as an immigrant might feel and that being that the people that were the terrorists that enacted this horrible, horrible 9-11 incident looked just like me or my brother or my husband mm -hmm. at the time or same husband I have now. But for the first time ever, I felt people might look at me a little bit differently. Now, the first few days afterwards, not so much. I was actually out of town traveling and had to fly home four days later, which was pretty terrifying. Um, but once I was home and, you know, within the months and days thereafter, as my husband and I were traveling, it was the very first time in my life that I truly felt other 
in a way that I had never been perceived before. Every single time for the next 10 years that my husband and I flew, he was always pulled aside for extra security checks. It never happened before. And they say there's no profiling, but we felt that profiling pretty intensely. And we kind of laughed it off because I was like, you can listen to me on, I mean, there, there was no Alexa back then, but I'm like, you can listen to me. You can read my texts. You can check out my voicemails. You can bug my phone. There is nothing that exciting in my life to <laughs> listen to. But if you want to have at it, I don't really, right. I'm not that concerned about my personal privacy that way. Um, but it was the very first time that I really started to feel that we were viewed differently. And I kept learning of attacks Uh, physical attacks on people, not necessarily that I knew, but were friends of friends and things that were happening to people that I knew. So it was a really weird shift in Mm. my American experience after 9-11 to be viewed as other for the first time. Okay. So Arturo, let me go back to something. Um, You know, when we talk about America, the perception of America is the land of freedom and things like that. When you initially got PNG told you, hey, you're going to be moving to the United States, what were your perceptions of the United States? Did you think, you know, a lot of people think that everybody is super wealthy. What were your particular perceptions? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you describe it pretty well, right? I mean, like, uh, th- there are, if you think about, especially, you know, the, our South America or continent and the part of North America considered Latin America, Mexico, Central America, obviously, you know, we get highly influenced by the United States, you know, movies, uh, politicians, uh, businesses, and et cetera. So, obviously, when you look at yourself compared to the benchmark and you see yourself, it's like, you know, we are, and in I, I was privileged in Venezuela, you know, you're semi-wealthy middle class you know you have a career uh, your parents gave you a good life uh, which is more a privilege when you are there than in here but you think about us as oh i'm going to the land where there is no trouble right you could say yeah there is going to be a band there's going to be some range between wealthiness but you know this is a land of opportunity for everybody like everything is perfect, you know, everything is fine, you know, you can fix it, you can buy a house, you know, like with a dollar because they give you credit, you know, it's, that's what you think, right? Nothing can happen, you know, like uh, it's uh, only the bad people go to jail uh, and the cops are only go after bad people. So obviously that's the concept you get for what for what you see in you know in again as I say I'm a very fan of Hollywood movies and but yeah that's a perception it's a perception of a very 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 wealthy nation and very just nation all right. And in case you're just tuning in this morning, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. It's part one of our two-part series on immigration. For more information, you can reach out to us on Facebook, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. You can listen to us anytime you like. Just head to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Sunday Morning Magazine. This morning in the studio with me, we're joined by Arturo and Sumi. Now, Sumi, let's talk more about your story. You are second-generation immigrant. Is that right? Yes. My... Oh. My parents um, immigrated in the late 60s to the U.S. My father came over first and attended uh, The Ohio State University to pursue his Ph.D. in mathematics. And um, my mom actually stayed. They had just recently married. And my mom stayed behind in India with her uh, in-laws family for the next three years. In that time period, my brother was born. And so they did not come to the U.S. for three years. So my parents, no, talk about no internet, no Facebook, no social media, no video communication. They didn't essentially, they wrote some letters, but they really had no communication that first three years of marriage. Um, And then my mom followed my father. My, you know, my father graduated, had a job. So she came here with my brother. 
um, on a plane to New York, not speaking a word of English. And um, in 1967, she literally spoke no English other than maybe saying hello. And with my little brother and they, or my older brother, I should say, but he was little at the time, three years old, and they moved to Columbus, Ohio. And um, got to know my dad and reacquainted themselves. I mean, it was pretty fascinating. It was many years later, I'm eight years younger than my brother, that I was actually born in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm the very first person in my entire enormous Indian family that was born in the U.S. Wow, look at that. So <laughs> let me ask you this now. Growing up, when were you first aware that, what was your first memory of knowing that you were from an immigrant family? So when I was young, um, my mom continued to wear the traditional Indian dress of a sari. And um, she had a very heavy accent. She, her English was very broken. She spoke what we call Hinglish. It's a combination of Hindi and English. I think a lot of cultural groups uh, mix their native language with the word English to come up with their own version of language. And Spanglish. Spanglish, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I knew, I would say around three or four years old, as my I started developing relationships with other kids in the neighborhood, and their moms would hang out together and spend time together and you know, there'd be parties, they'd have cocktails, they, they would watch soap operas and things like that. I mean, back in the day, that was when most families had a single working parent, at least we're in the community that I lived in. And um, the mothers stayed at home, nobody had a car. So because there was only one car in the family back then. And uh, my mom typically did not socialize with anybody else. Anytime we'd be out, whether it was 100 degrees out or 30 degrees, she'd always be wearing a sari. And so she dressed very differently. She didn't wear shorts. She didn't put on a swimsuit and go to the swimming pool with us. If she went to the swimming pool, she wore that sari to the swimming pool, um, even in 100-degree weather. God love her. But it. So that's kind of when I started to notice it when I was younger, um, maybe three or four years old. And my, I also, my mom, we always ate Indian food at home, which at that time in my life I did not appreciate. And so... I often ate at my friends' houses. My good friend Paige, her mom Betty was from the deep south and made the best fried chicken ever. Yeah. She'd make pancakes and spaghetti. And I basically shot to eat at her house every single night so I wouldn't have to eat Indian food at home. And that's kind of when I started to realize that something was really different at my house than it was at my friends' houses. Okay. And so growing up, um, you know, you talked about the way your mother dressed and things like that. Growing up, was that difficult for you to fit in, to be part of the in crowd or what have you? Was that difficult for you? So it was difficult initially in our neighborhood environment where sometimes somebody would host a barbecue and everybody would come over and hang out. Parents would all come together and have drinks and cocktails. And my parents weren't really big drinkers, but they would come over and the issue, the challenge that we always faced was that my parents were vegetarian. And so you go over for a barbecue and it's pork and beans and hot dogs and hamburgers and they literally ate none of that. Um, I'm not even sure what my mom would bring or if she would just bring chips or something. And then, um, or fruit, cut fruit, I think is what she would oftentimes bring. And they would just socialize for a little bit and then leave. So I think socially it was a little awkward for me. However, my brother, my parents actually, very differently than most immigrant families, my parents really strove to allow us to integrate to the level that we were comfortable with. So my mother may be a pure vegetarian, but she makes some of the most incredible beef chili 
ever. She made hamburgers, chili, she bought hot dogs. She allowed meat to come into the home, whereas I have friends to this day whose parents still will not allow meat into their family home. And so my my parents were a little bit more bicultural and willing to kind of embrace what we wanted to embrace and be supportive of that from a very young age. So we're lucky in that they allowed us to make that choice as opposed to saying this is the way that we were raised, so we're going to raise you the exact same way. They were a little more open, I think, to American culture than a lot of my other Indian friends' parents were. What's interesting, though, is that I grew up in an area that was predominantly Caucasian. I would say maybe 5% ethnicity in that area. And I can tell you, I knew and was friends with every single person that was of a different ethnic origin. I look back, and I was friends with the two black girls in my sixth grade class. I mean, I was just reflecting on that the other day. Um, I knew the one Korean girl in my class, Junhee Park. She was a friend of mine as well. And James Lee. I mean, these were my friends growing up that I was actually pretty close to either socially, outside of school, or academically. If there was some sort of dance contest or talent show, we would kind of come together and create our own team always. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I ever noticed it until now as an adult recently. I've sort of reflecting back, I realized that I was building some sort of connection with these people who were also second generation immigrants and or visibly diverse from everybody else around us that I didn't realize I had maybe been subconsciously even seeking out. And, you know, I actually really in high school disassociated from my Indian culture. I didn't really spend a lot of time with my Indian friends. I really tried to reestablish myself as Sue. That was the name that I went by in high school. In fact, when somebody calls me Sue, I know it's somebody I know from high school. Um, <laughs> it, I really made this, tried to make this disconnect in, in terms of my own social assimilation I was trying to navigate. And it wasn't until college where I started to realize that this whole Indian culture thing's kind of cool. All right. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to part one of our two-part series on immigration. We're speaking to Arturo and Sumi. Sumi is a second-generation immigrant and Arturo's first generation. Of course, now, Sumi, you said something um, earlier off the air. You talked about growing up, you often had to speak up for your mother. You talked about, on air, you talked about um, the language barrier for her. But what was that like having, as a child or a young adult, having to speak up for your mother? What did that, and how did that change your dynamic, the family dynamic, the mother-daughter dynamic, perhaps? You know, as I got older, maybe in my teenage years, I started I started to speak up on my mom's behalf. Maybe we would go shopping to the grocery store, and she would need to ask the manager a question. I very quickly noticed that because of her heavy accent, there were two challenges. One, um, the person that she would speak was speaking to often was unable to fully understand what she was trying to articulate. And the second is, I think, possibly, and I'm, I might be projecting a bit, but in their um, discomfort or embarrassment at not being able to understand, would speak very rudely to her. And I noticed this happening over and over again. I was always going to the grocery store with my mom because she goes seven days a week, it feels like. And um, I found myself in jumping into the conversation and speaking on her behalf. And the way that the person would interact with me always, every single instance and memory that I have was friendly 
and accommodating and understanding. Their tone immediately changed as soon as I interjected and got involved in the conversation. And it really bothered me. There's actually grocery stores who I will not name, even in the Cincinnati area, that I will not shop ever because of the way the manager treated my mom. Even now as an adult, um, it really bothers me. And I, I just don't go back to those stores because I feel like if they can't treat everybody equally or even make an effort to be kind, even mm-hmm. when they're having difficulty understanding, that's just not someplace I want a patron. Generally speaking, how are immigrants treated here in the United States? What have you seen? What have you experienced? Um, let's talk about the perception. How are immigrants treated? I, I think it's a great question. You know, I think that uh, because I get the same question from family I have in Venezuela or friends. How do they treat you there, Arturo? How do they treat you? And, you know, do they, do they like you? Do they hate you? And it's who's they? You know, because when you, when you think about they, it's... You're talking about the whole country, right? So I think there is a range of, you know, of attitudes. I mean, obviously, you know, when you're coming from the outside, you know, and let's face it, I mean, Spanish is a very known language in U.S., so people know that, you know, vast majority will ask me, you know, are you from Mexico? What part of Mexico are you? Or, you know, are you from Brazil? Or where are you from? But there are some people that obviously will know and say, you know, are, are you from South America? Yeah. And you get a lot of, uh, okay, this is the weird animal in neighborhood. Like, you know, this is a very classic, you know, call it, I don't know, normal white American neighborhood. And you're, there is someone, an immigrant coming, like a weird animal. Some people will be interested and attracted to know you better, to know a little bit what you do for a special interest, you know, and that. Some people will do it because they're cautious. Where is this from? You know, where are you coming from? And they will be asking, but they will not be as engaging. And some people say, you know, I, would, I don't care. You're like kind of a side, you know, part of the, like, a, like an issue in the neighborhood. You know, you have, the, you have the weird house or you're the house where they speak a different language. So I think it's, uh, it's hard to say, okay, this is how they treat you. It's a combination of elements, you know, uh, and I can, I have analyzed this a lot. And when they ask me about this and it's like, I believe that United States, the society, it's extremely welcoming, you know, to immigration. And they understand that. And there's a part of the society that is all the other way around where you're going to be seen because something because maybe it's like hate or or xenophobic thinking, maybe some it's just fear about, "Mm, you know, you may not be good for me. So I think it's a combination of that. But in my experience or my personal experience, as I told you, you know, if I can see myself an an immigrant, uh, there is also a range of what is an immigrant. I immigrant that I came to what they call through the big door. You know, I came with a job. So money wasn't a problem for the beginning. Uh, I came with uh, uh, status. Yeah, you can go to a neighborhood where you're not going to suffer, you know, like the police going to your house to see what's happening or, you know, or you're not going to be harassed by the police to some extent, nothing. Uh, The issue is more into how do you integrate to the society? You could say, hey, I can tolerate you, but I don't invite you to my parties. So it was very difficult at the beginning. So how do we make, how do we make friends when you're coming? It's not that your friends coming with you. I mean, like, and especially 20 years ago, there was no social media. So it's like you are in isolation. So how do you start understanding what you are, talking to people. So, yeah, it takes time. I think it takes two to tango in every relationship. Uh, But I think for us it was how do you find people that look like you? And at the beginning you go to the default. I'm going to meet Venezuelans. And after three or four years I realized, like, like, I don't 
I know I have some friends, but I don't like them. You know, mm-hmm. like we don't <laughs> have things in common. I don't have always. things in common. And then you integrate yourself, and you—it's. I think it's an education process where you understand better the other person. The other person understands you. And this is the global world. People is changing. The world is changing. Uh, people understand the benefits of immigration, the, the benefits of diversity from any any gender, uh, ethnicity, etc. So I think if you say, how do they treat you? I think things have evolved because I have learned how to uh, love America the same way I think part of you know America has, has learned to love or like you. So I think it's been a, it's been a process. At the beginning, it was a little bit shocky, yeah. Okay. And so if, we- when I think about how immigrants are treated, I feel that if I look back 40 years ago compared to now, I think 40 years ago, there was a much higher expectation of assimilation of immigrants. Um, It wasn't very easy to have a different cultural background, different dietary needs. There weren't, there were no Indian restaurants in the seventies in America. Now they're everywhere. So celebration of different cultures wasn't something that existed. I feel broadly throughout the U S maybe on, on a coastal area, you might have felt it, you know, in California, or you might have felt it in New York City or Miami, but you didn't feel it in the Midwest, I can tell you that. And I think that America as a country, we're not there necessarily, but we have evolved incredibly in terms of integrating, celebrating, embracing different cultures. Um, not everybody's interested in doing that, but a lot of people are. A lot of people are genuinely curious about what we eat, how we celebrate our cultural events. They want to know what the family cultural events are that I'm celebrating. They want to know why I never talked about it before. Um, There's just a much greater interest in embracing cultural diversity than there was before. So I feel, you know, when, when it comes to embracing immigration, if you will, I think that a large number of Americans, I'm not going to say all, and I'm not going to say the majority, but compared to 40 years ago, a large number of Americans are very, very enthusiastic about embracing those differences. You know, you talk about cultural festivals, they are every single weekend, and they were few and far between. I mean, when I was growing up, we had the Asian festival. It was one festival for all of Asia. Now you've got the Japanese festival. You've got a Chinese food festival. You've got an Indian festival. You've got, you know, the Southeast Asian festival. The Thai people are all getting together and having, I mean, you've, there's really, there's more distinction and recognition of those distinctions than you've seen previously. All right. So let's talk about this. I want to talk about your children Mm -hmm. because you have, second generation Artero with your children, third generation for you, Sumi. What are some things that you wanted to make sure from your culture that you passed on to your children? And are your children totally Americanized? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a great question because, I mean, this is not a, this is something that changes every year, right? You know, when we came, uh, I, I guess that we didn't give a lot of thoughts. We had Alejandro. He was a year and a half old. Uh, uh, little little bull, you know, running around here and there. He didn't care where he was, uh, uh, of course. <laughs> but uh, when Raquel and I thought about it, is okay, fine. You know, uh, at the beginning, once we realized that we were going to be here for good, 
you know, and uh, and we had our second one or or a third. You could you could say that even when Alejandro came from Venezuela, he he was raised here, right? It's like you know, what do we do? You know, because obviously, you know, my 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 thoughts were, you know, you think about what's your life you want or the your wish when you are growing up is I want to grow up in Venezuela, have my kids, and you know, you educate them in your country, and then you're here. It's like, what can I teach them about U.S. because I don't know really, you know. I, I don't know about that, but how do I don't alienate them into, okay, we're going to go like, a, oh, you are a Venezuelan and this is the culture and this is how you behave and say, but no, they are U.S. American citizens. They are American Hispanics, but this is their country. It's not where we came from. So we give it a lot of thoughts, but in the end, I, I think that um, if I may, the the ultimate solution is you got to be what you are. And when we are at home, we keep speaking the same way. We speak Spanish, uh, of course. Uh, we celebrate the same things we do in Venezuela. You know, we. my wife is a great cook. You know, I'm lucky us, you know. I'm glad to know that because I would like to come over for dinner. Okay. <laughs> so Count me in, dude. But for example, in, in Venezuela, like every time my wife was cooking this and that, it's an experience because for several cultures, uh, cooking, it's a family thing. Like cooking the December, Christmas, uh, uh, ayacas or, or pernil, etc. Or, you know, whatever you guys do in Thanksgiving is turkey, but for us it's Christmas, right? Uh, or what is a typical breakfast on Saturday? You know, it's like the whole family around. And that's something we kept. And all the stories came about okay, your grandmother, yeah, yeah, your grandmother used to be like this. Oh, no way. So there is a lot of that. And so you teach the culture organically. I mean, they will get it. They will embrace it. And they are interested to learn different things. And my son right now, Ohio State, is calling, hey, you know, was it like that in Venezuela when you grow up? So there is that There is that thing versus, okay, you know, we're going to go every Saturday to teach you a lesson about, you know, the Venezuelan leaders or whatever okay. it is. So it came like that. Now, at the same time, I mean, our concern is, you know, how do we embrace them into the American culture? Because we have to, and we don't know much. And I think this is something that we said, okay, this is the one where I don't think we we can have the responsibility, but we're going to learn together. Like, well, still, I'm not as good. You know, I still don't know rules of football very well. <laughs> I know what a fumble is and et cetera. But sometimes I have to ask, why did this happen? Shut up, Dad. You know, et cetera. So I think we are learning together. I think we learn together. And they're faster, so I'm behind. But learn together about the American culture, way to live. But at the same time, we organically continue teaching them about our heritage. All right. We're still elements. all confused about football, some of us. So don't don't worry about that. Uh, me. Uh, what's your experience with your boys so i i am we are so incredibly lucky my husband and i both and that my parents um live three houses away from us on the same side of the street kind of like everybody loves raymond but we everybody loves sumi (laughs) and then my in-laws are only a minute and a half away so we have a very integrated family relationship with their grandparents and it makes it much easier to tie back into the culture. Now, I will say this. My kids don't know any Hindi at all. And sometimes that's a cultural advantage when my mom and I need to talk about something in front of them. (laughs) Uh, My friends harass me for that all the time. They say, you should have taught them. And they knew it when they were younger, but then when they went to school, it's just something that sort of fell off. And um, I, I truly didn't feel it was something that was of all the critical things in the world these days, that that was something I was going to focus my energy on. They actually speak better Spanish than they do English sometimes. Um, we listen to a lot of Hispanic music. But it, as far as culturally, I think I give a lot of credit to my 
both my moms to they have been they cook and they send Indian food over. My kids go over to their houses and eat Indian food. When it comes to religious holidays, my mom has made it a very important critical family point that we gather together, we offer prayer, yeah. we offer thanks, and we gather together as a family to celebrate those events in our own way. Uh, my kids have never complained because they get two Christmases. They get regular uh, Christian Christmas, and then they get to have Hindu Christmas, which is Diwali. <laughs> so it's like double the gifts um, and double the celebration. So I think they've always kind of enjoyed that, that there's both sides of things. And the other thing is my mom and dad have always, again, I mentioned earlier, they've really been uh, wonderful about open and accepting of others and inclusion of others that my kids, their friends have come over and celebrated a holiday. You know, maybe there was a soccer practice. You know, Charlie wanted to come over and hang out and eat Indian food with us. He came over and ended up celebrating Diwali with us after soccer practice. And just as my dad's handing out Chipotle gift cards to everybody, Charlie gets one too. <laughs> so, which is very much the Indian culture. You know, you include everybody and all the kids are your kids. So I think in that way, my my children have really been able to kind of connect back into the culture. Now, I will say we raised our children, although we are not Catholic, we sent them to parochial schools here. And um, neither my husband or I attended parochial schools, but we made that choice for our children because we were fairly religious and we wanted that to be a component of their lives. Um, and... Another good friend of mine as well, Indian friend of mine who has kids the same age, did the same thing, made the same choice. So she took it upon herself about seven or eight years ago to start a monthly Hindu class where um, she would she was the we're going to call her the Hindu Indian cultural expert because she is a first generation immigrant and knows all about these things I that I did not. Um, and so once a month she would teach a little bit of culture. We would get all of our kids together and there would be some prayer and some education around the religion. I don't, have not figured out yet who learned more in those classes, whether it was my kids or me. I learned so much in those classes about my own native culture that it was really fascinating for me. Um, eight years later, though, we just celebrated, you know, a bunch of these kids going off to college and there is still some tie back for them into their culture. Now, that all being said... It's interesting, my oldest son going to college, you know, in the process of trying to find a roommate at this new school that he's going to where he didn't really have any friends going, he ended up connecting with another young man that is also Indian from a different part of the country, similarly third-generation immigrant like he is, who's into the same things, basketball, sports, sports, basketball, mm -hmm. all things sports. Um, and... He probably waited a month to tell us. We never even asked. We thought, you know what? Find your roommate. You're going to be happy. It's great. He About a month later, he came up to us and said, hey, mom, so did I ever tell you who it was that I picked to be roommates with? And I said, no, I decided you would probably be able to handle that best on your own. And he's like, it's actually an Indian guy. And I'm not going to lie to you. I was completely flabbergasted, thrilled that he was able to try to make this connection on his own, but on his own terms. And um, with his own level of interest in engaging. And he, for the first time in his life, on his own, is really connecting with the whole... I mean, okay, now we are falling into a stereotype here. He's going to be an engineering student <laughs> in college. So chances are high that he's going to interact with other Southeast Asians. Well, he is on a group chat with, you know, 25 other Southeast Asian kids, 
all with varying experiences. Some are first generation immigrants, some are second and some are third. And so it's kind of entertaining, I think, to him in some ways. But but he's finding that connection on his own. But, but if I may, right? Yeah. Uh, because it, like uh, I like that, that our kids, sometimes they get fascinated. Hey, Dad, I met a Venezuelan friend, you know, and they get interested. And that right. that spark, I think, is great. Like my son in, in Ohio State say, hey, Mom, Dad, I, I met an Alejandro, that name like me, you know. <laughs> he, her mom is in Venezuela, but he's studying in Miami. He came to, uh, I think in Miami, he came to Ohio State. And he said, and her mom curses like you. <laughs> this is so great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so that is fascinating, the connection they can make and they're interested to, the, wow, there's someone like me. Right. Let, let me try and learn, you know, like a little bit more. That's a, that's a magic moment. All right. And with that, I could talk to you guys forever, but we are out of time this morning. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us this morning. Thank you, Sumi. It was a thank, joy. Thank was, you so thank much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Again, this morning, you're listening to part one of our two-part series on immigration. For part two of the show, you can listen in next week at the same time. For anything that you may have missed, you can listen to the show anytime you like. Just head to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.